to attend Children's Church. Good morning. All right, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Mike McGarry. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be uh, bringing God's Word to us this morning. And so uh, if you want to take your pew Bible and start flipping open to uh, Colossians chapter 3, it's on page 1045 in your pew Bible, then we're going to be reading and addressing Colossians 3.18 through 4.1. And uh, when was the last time you had an uncomfortable conversation? Made you squirm a little bit in your seat. But at the end of the conversation, you're like, okay, that was healthy. That was good. That was helpful. Still not entirely sure if I enjoyed that. But it was good. Right? I think most of us have had those conversations. That's kind of how I think this sermon is going to be. Um, this is a, this is a, a difficult passage. Um, it cuts against the grain of a lot of what we hear in uh, our culture and in the world around us. Um, and it's not just theory, uh, but for many of us, this, this is a personally difficult passage uh, for, for many of us, for, for you and for me. And so um, I believe it's here. I believe it is God-breathed. Uh, we believe that this is Scripture and that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and for training in righteousness. Amen? So, um, if we can't have hard conversations and preach difficult uh, and confusing passages like this, and if we can't have these conversations in church, uh, then we just want comfortable faith. And, well. So, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the passage and walk through it. Uh, together. Sound good? All right, let's go. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for passages like this that um, sometimes we read and we just don't really know what to do with. So Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit as our teacher and preacher this morning? Lord, help your words to stand and mine to fall. And, uh, Lord, would you give us wisdom, Uh, would you give us sensitivity uh, to your truth and to understand with discernment uh, what uh, what this passage does mean for us and help us to understand what it does not mean. Um, Lord, I pray for those who have experienced some form of abuse in in life. Um, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them as you have promised to do. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to rally around one another, um, to, to speak the truth in love, and to strengthen those um, who, are, who are struggling. And so, Lord, may we be a church who loves your word uh, and who knows how to submit to you first and foremost and to live accordingly. And so I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 
says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Whew. Right? Yeah. So here we are. And I'm sure there are lots of thoughts and feelings um, going on right now. Uh, some of you might think, yeah, why did I come this morning? Of all Sundays to come to church, this is the one I chose to come. Uh, some of you might be tempted to get up and, and to walk out. Some of you might just mentally check out and, and think, I'm not listening to what a pastor has to say about these issues. Um, and others among you are probably like, yeah, go get them. Um, and others are thinking, okay, like we need to have these uncomfortable conversations together. Like we need to figure out, like we need to be willing to talk about these issues. Uh, and so wherever you're at, I, I just want to ask, uh, can we have this conversation? Um, and I think these are important issues for us to, to build out from Scripture and to think through the, a biblical lens, uh, not just kind of what else we hear around us or what we hear from within us. Uh, and so before we move on, I just want to um, put a, a lineup of the elephants in the text on the stage. We're not going to have time to talk to each elephant, right? Um, or otherwise, this would be like a two-hour long sermon, and I don't think any of you really have time for, or interest in that. Um, but I, I think it's helpful just to acknowledge the issues uh, the very difficult issues in here. Uh, wives submitting to men. Uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. Children obeying their parents in everything. Abusive authority in the home. Uh, slavery and masters. Is the Bible condoning slavery here? Uh, on top of that, uh, what about single parent households? Uh, what about infertility uh, in couples who, who haven't been able to have children? Uh, and what about those who uh, are single for, for life uh, and never um, experience marriage and, and parenthood? Right? Does this, what does this passage say to each of those individuals? Um, so again, I wish we had time to address all those, but I just want to say, I see you, 
And I get it as much as I'm able to get it. Um, but I want to walk through the passage um, with you uh, to, to share what does, what does this passage say. Um, and maybe a few reflections on uh, ways that it's been misinterpreted and misapplied. So, um, before we dive into the text, it's important to recognize that this passage is not in isolation. Um, when the letter, when Paul wrote the letter of Colossians and sent it to the church, he sent it to the church to be read in the gathering of the body of Christ. So if I was receiving the letter of Colossians from Paul and we were gathered, I would read the entire letter to the church. So where we are preaching through the book of Colossians and reading sections at a time and then expounding on that, they would have read the entire letter at once. So this passage isn't read in isolation and should not be read and understood completely on its own without taking into account everything that's come before it in Colossians and without thinking about what is said after it, right? So it is one letter uh, so I want to just read three passages uh, of what we've already discussed and what we've already heard uh, from Colossians 1 through 3 that I think set a helpful context for understanding uh, why is Paul talking about this and how is Paul talking about this, okay? So first, uh, so I hope you keep, keep, keep your Bibles open. Uh, so first is Colossians 1. 21 through 22, where Paul says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you through his physical body, through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So Paul is writing to Christians, right? He's not writing to non Christians, he's writing to Christians who are growing in holiness and in Christ-likeness. They used to be alienated from God and were hostile to God's law, but now they've been reconciled. And what does that mean? Right? Once they were alienated and hostile, now they have been reconciled. Right? The relationship has been restored. What once was enmity and conflict now is reconciled, right? It is now a, a holy, a healthy, a whole relationship. Okay, so uh, accordingly, because we have been reconciled through faith in Christ, through the work of Christ, uh, then what is happening in the Christian is that God is actively working in you and in me to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Isn't that incredible? This is the work and the promise of the gospel. Uh, so 
uh, it's important to keep that in mind, right? What is happening in the Christian life, right? God is taking what was broken in our life and what was alienated in our life, and he is reconciling it, and he is restructuring our life so that we would become holy, blameless, and faultless. And then in Colossians 2, 6 through 7, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. So we've been reconciled with Christ uh, by the promise, uh, along with the promise that he's going to present us holy, faultless, and blameless. And now we're told to walk in him. Because the Christian life isn't simply past, we have been saved. And the Christian life isn't simply future, we will be saved. The Christian life is also present, walk in Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in Christ? Great question. Colossians chapter 3. Right? Colossians 3, 2 through 5. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore... Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So walking in Christ means that we set our minds on things above, not merely on earthly things. Obviously, that doesn't mean never think about this life, never think about worldly things. But what he's saying is that you fix your mind on your heavenly glory. If you're like me, you're, you're, one of your big plans for the day, for the afternoon, is to mow the lawn, right? Love it. Um, if you want to mow a straight row when you're mowing the lawn, what do you do? Right? You don't have your eye right in front of the mower. You fix your end point, and then you push. With your eye fixed on the end point, and you just walk in the direction of what you're looking at. If you're always looking in front of you, you're going to get crooked rows, and you don't want crooked rows, right? You, you fix your eye on the destination, and then you push, right? We fix our eye on our heavenly destination. We fix our mind on things above, and then we walk. So, in the context for this passage... He is telling us, you have been saved, you will be saved, walk in Christ. How can we do that if we won't do that at home? How can we do that if our marriages, if our parenting, if our other family relationships, and if our work life is not brought under the authority of the gospel. And so that's where Paul leads into this conversation. He's not just trying to 
put women in their place and tell slaves to obey their masters and get back to work. The realization that we have here is that this letter was written to a church. So when he addresses wives, they were there in the room. When he addresses husbands, they were there in the room with the wives. And when he addresses the children, the children were there in church with their parents. And when he addresses the slaves, guess where they were too? They were there as fellow members of the church. That he was addressing them as Christians and applying the gospel. So, we're going to read the passage through again as we look at each um, audience, shall we call them, uh, and then kind of unpack some things of what that means. So, this is about living in Christ, walking in Christ at home. Verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands, uh, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter to them. Uh, Many of us have likely heard people interpret this passage to mean that husbands are nearly sovereign over their wives. We've also heard people say that this is outdated um, and if we understood the culture better, then we would understand that that's really just not actually what it is meant to be, so we can kind of ignore this passage. And I think for the most part, uh, we should believe the plain reading of the biblical text, even if it makes us squirm a little bit. Uh, We want to understand hard passages in context of where we read them. We need to understand the culture in which they were written, in order to really understand what does this actually say. Um, But in general, the more you have to explain away a hard passage, the more doubtful I am of that interpretation. That's just the way I read and understand Scripture. So... I do believe that this passage means that husbands are held to a higher accountability before the Lord for their family and that wives are called to submit to their husbands. I think anyone who knows me and who knows Tracy, my wife, will know that does not mean that women and that Christian women should just be silent and quiet and just say, Yes, honey. Right? That is not what this passage means by submission. That doesn't mean that it is wrong for wives to disagree or to have opinions or to have strong opinions. And that doesn't mean that husbands should always get their way. So... What doesn't this mean? A few things. And these all have overlap. The first thing I don't think this means is that women don't have a voice in marriage. That only the husband's voice matters. This is not saying that. 
right? That because I am in Christ, I am living under submission to God. When I look at Scripture and Ephesians 5, which is the parallel passage to this, tells me that I am called to love Tracy as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He laid down his life for the church. Jesus didn't come down all Mr. Bossy Pants and say, listen up. I have some instructions. Right? Jesus knows what the church needs. He knows their condition. He knows the church's fears and anxieties and concerns. And guess what he paid for the church? Everything. How can a Christian husband who is in Christ take this passage to mean you need to just submit to me. You just need to do what I say. That is not what this passage means. Second, this passage doesn't mean that husbands always get their way and that disagreement is tantamount to unsubmissiveness and is sinful. Right? Again, remember the rest of Colossians, where the message is about how we are living new in Christ. Repenting of our sin, walking in holiness and in humility. And if we're walking in Christ, like truly actively walking in Christ, then we will walk in humility. Both men and women, husbands and wives. And we will be husbands who are easy to submit to. And we will be wives who joyfully recognize that we don't always need to control and get our way. I think we can agree with that. That should not be controversial. The third thing this does not mean is that men are more in the image of God than women. One of the accusations of this viewpoint of what's called complementarianism, right? One of the accusations of complementarian readings of Scripture, which is what I'm sharing, is the accusation that we functionally believe that men are more than women. And that's just not true. We just believe that we're, we're different. Men and women are not interchangeable. We are not the same. We are complementary, right? Think about math class, right? Complementary angles, right? They need each other, right? They, they need each other to make a right angle, and so it's not about, well, who's this and who's that. It, it, it's, a, it's a recognition of our equality in needing each other. I need you and you need me. And sometimes I'm a complete mess and Tracy's carrying 99% of the load. And sometimes it's the other way around. And we're, we don't keep track of that. 
It's not, oh, well, I had to carry your stuff last week, so now it's my turn. So, yes, the word submit is used in this passage. It is loaded. It is loaded. But every Christian, men and women, is told to have a submissive and servant-hearted spirit in the New Testament. We see this in Ephesians 5.21, in 1 Corinthians 16.16, in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which uh, Steve read for us earlier, and in 1 Peter 5.5. In these passages, Christians are told to submit. It is not only given to women. So we all submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? Uh, this means first and foremost that marriage is not a competition. It's very silent, right? That marriage is not a competition. Amen. I know we're New Englanders, but we are Baptists, right? Come on. Right? So notice that um, husbands are called to lead with love. The passage does not say wives submit to your husbands and husbands lead and direct your wives. No. It says wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. So husbands who use this verse to control and demand obedience are sinning and are actually doing the exact opposite of what this passage says. Again, we love as Christ has loved. The second thing I think this means is that we need to take the competition out of marriage. Uh, The battle of the sexes. Uh, comes out from the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, part of the curse uh, was Genesis 3.16, which was given to the woman, to Eve, and says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will, yet he will rule over you. Uh, The the Hebrew word for desire in this passage uh, isn't a mushy, gushy, I just love him so much, desire, right? Um, it's, it's used again in the next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 4, when God is warning Cain about sin and temptation, right? So catch this. It says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So in this setting, right, it's it's a, your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be to compete with him. Your desire will be to overtake him. Your desire will be to control him. Your desire will be for your husband, right? So there's this, this battle of the sexes. It's a desire to consume and overtake. It's a desire to show that you're better than or more powerful, that you're wiser. It's a warring desire, Whereas God created woman from Adam's rib, from his side, not from his head and not from his foot, 
but from his side, right? They were meant to be partners. Uh, She was meant to be the reinforcement that Adam needed to fulfill God's calling for humanity. And now there's competition over who's better, over who's greater, who's in charge. That's the wrong question. And so Colossians 3, 18 and 19 isn't saying the man wins. It's saying the battle is over. It's time to be partners again. So stop competing with each other and submit to, God, to Christ's lordship. Stop the competition. Amen? All right, moving on. Hopefully a little bit briefer for the others. Verses 20 and 21 uh, talks about parents and children. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. This is the verse that every parent loves. And every kid is like, ugh, that one again. Right? None of us enjoys being told God wants you to obey. None of us enjoys being told you need to obey someone else. At the same time, fathers, as the leaders of the household, are told not to exasperate their children. This verse is not permission to be an authoritarian dictator at home. This doesn't mean that you just get to control your kids. It doesn't mean that you just go around making demands and telling your kids what to do and how to do everything. Here's why obedience matters so much in our households. Because if we never learn how to obey human authority who we can see face to face, who hopefully, again, he's writing to Christian households, so hopefully this is a household that is walking in Christ with parents who who love one another, who are loving their kids in Christ. If we never learn how to obey those parents, And those earthly authorities. When God, when God's word tells us to obey and we don't want to and we can't see him, what do you think we're going to do? And so in a sense, we practice obeying God by obeying the earthly authorities in our lives. For children... These are your parents. But I also think for, for the rest of us as adults, like if you can't take instruction from your boss at work or if you can't take instruction or correction from other people, I think that is a Christian concern that I have for you. If you always have to be in control, if you always have to be right, if you always have to be the boss, and if you are uncorrectable, 
then you will not obey God unless he agrees with you. And that is not a Christian spirit. So, from a young age, not how can we control our kids, how can we lead our kids in obedience? Right? That's the concern here. Right? That we want to have Christian households, not just dictator households, not just well-behaved kids, but we want to have Christian households. So as parents, and as fathers especially, is this question of, am I faithfully representing the kind of heavenly father that God is towards us? And I think a lot of us can think about our relationship with God, right? Think about your, the nature of your relationship with God and how you view him, how you pray to him. When you pray, how do you address him? And how does that parallel with your relationship with your earthly father? Right? Like, was your earthly father absent? And so you kind of always feel like your heavenly father is, you know, he might provide for me, but he's absent. Or my, my father provides for, for me, but, you know, he's like a real hothead. And so I feel like, you know, God is always going to be mad at me if I mess up. Or, you know, my dad, like, he wasn't really very good at providing, but I knew that he loved me. Right? And so, like, there, there are some significant ways in which our relationship with our Heavenly Father and our relationship with our earthly fathers do parallel with each other. And so if you are a father, just be aware of that. And if you had a really, if you had the kind of father who taught you what your Heavenly Father is not like, that's also, that's a heavy load to carry. But just know that your Heavenly Father is who he has revealed himself to be, not who your earthly father portrayed him as. Continuing on. Slaves and masters. This is a long section, and I want to share a little bit about why. So you can, you can look at these and be like, Everyone else gets one verse, and the slaves get like a ton of verses. Doesn't that seem unfair? Here's why. Here's why. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back whatever he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So in a system that is innately unjust, I struggle with questioning why doesn't Paul just say, knock it off, right? But what he does do is he addresses them with dignity. He addresses them with dignity. He says, you serve 
the Lord, right? Then remembering that the Lord, the word Lord is the same as the word for master, right? Knowing that you serve the master Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. That when you do what you have to do, do it as an act of worship for the Lord who sees what you're doing and he will reward you. And those who mistreat you will be judged. God is not blind towards the injustice that you endure. God is not blind towards this situation. God is not blind. He is patient. But he is not inactive. There will be judgment. And people will be held to account for how they have treated you. That's why this passage is longer than others. It, it, read it again. And that is underneath what he is saying. It's also important for us to recognize that slavery in the Bible is not the same thing as the chattel slavery uh, that was practiced in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, the Bible explicitly condemns that kind of slavery. Listen to Exodus 21.16. Whoever, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in, possess, in possession of him shall be put to death. It's right there in the Bible. So this is not the slavery that is being talked about. Uh, when we as Americans think about slavery, um, it's not the same as what the Bible is talking about when it talks about slavery. I don't want to explain that away. I've heard other sermons about passages like this that merely talk about like employees and employers, and it's not that, right? Like this is more than an employee and an employer situation. Uh, but it wasn't uh, race-based. It wasn't specific of this ethnicity serves this ethnicity. Um, and so, and there were protections and provisions in place in Scripture for slaves as ways to set them free and to protect their dignity and well-being as people who are also created in the image of God. So, how did people become slaves in ancient times? Going to make this quick. Um, three main ways. First, uh, people became slaves in the ancient, in biblical times, in order to pay off a debt. So, if, um, if I was greatly indebted to you, and I couldn't pay it off, then I could sell myself as a slave to you for a period of time, depending on how great or low the debt was, and after that time period, then I would be free, and my time of, as, as your servant or slave would be done. Uh, this is kind of an indentured servitude type of situation. Um, second was as punishment for a crime. Again, depending on the scale of the crime, uh, what was the severity of the crime would shape and inform uh, the length and the type of slavery and servitude that it was. Uh, that was a second way uh, that uh, someone would, could become a slave in the Bible. The third 
uh, fairly obvious and, and common, uh, was as a result of war. Uh, so if, if I battle you and wh- whoever wins oftentimes would take, um, take the remaining people as, as, as slaves and as a, a way of power, as a, po- a political situation of servitude. Um, so, so Paul is writing to slaves in the church, again, remembering that they were in the church, they were there, they were Christians. Um, he is addressing them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. Right before this passage, just a few verses before this passage, we read this very well-known uh, verse, right? Colossians 3.11. In Christ, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. And so they're reading this in one sitting together, one body, one group, one gathering of believers together. And Paul has just said, in Christ, you are one. And so Paul reminds them. Paul reminds the masters He says, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you too have a master in heaven, for you too have a Lord in heaven. That word master, that word Lord, it's the same one that's used previously. It's the same one that's used earlier in that same verse. Right? You earthly masters, remember that you have a heavenly master. You earthly lord, remember that you have a heavenly lord. That you will be held accountable for your life and for the dignity that you treat others with. So, here's what I think is important to remember as we wrap everything together. Colossians is one letter. It wasn't written with chapter and verse divisions. Those were included centuries later so that Christians could reference verses and we could all find our place together. It was one letter written to be read aloud all together while the church gathered to hear Paul's message. We've already said this. He references wives Fathers, children, slaves, masters, understanding that everyone is in the room together. When Paul writes, in Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is in all and Christ is all and in all. He wrote that because all those types of people were in the room together. And I've got to assume that as the person up front read the letter, that they all started looking across the room at each other. And then when they made eye contact, they did that thing. I wasn't looking. Awkward eye contact all around the room. Looking at each other. And they were being told about their unity despite all the things that could drive them apart from each other. 
They were told about their unity despite everything that could cause so much division among them. And Paul, then Paul launches into today's passage. And for us, this leads to suspicion and division. But for them, it was an acknowledgement of their undeniable reality. They knew the divisions. They knew the baggage. They were not shocked by anything that Paul was talking about. What Paul wrote brought them together out of their shared calling to walk in Christ. The women had few legal rights and were dependent on their husbands in ways that women today simply aren't. Husbands could easily be puffed up and harshly treat their wives and children as property. And slaves already knew their social standing. And I've got to imagine it would have been easy for them to do the bare minimum and then skate by and for masters to treat their slaves like slaves. But Paul tells them that in Christ you are one body. There is no difference between you in Christ. So wives can submit to their husbands, and husbands can genuinely love their wives, and children can obey their fathers because they know their father loves them and is not exasperating them, is not squeezing the life out of them. And slaves can honor their masters despite the unjust system, knowing that God is the true master and their earthly master will give an account for how they have been treated. In the midst of everything else that can divide and breed animosity and bitterness and division, all these Christians are one in Christ. And so are we. So, we can walk together in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, would you remind us of our unity? Lord, help us to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations, to listen to one another, and to listen most to your voice, to listen most to your word, to remember the promise that we have been reconciled according to Christ, that our faith, our salvation is past, it has been done in Christ, that our salvation is future, that we will be presented holy, blameless, and faultless, and that our salvation is present, is today. Lord, help us to walk in Christ. Help us to do that even and especially at home in how we deal with the people who we are most comfortable with and how we deal with the people who we often let our guards down and can treat so flippantly. Lord, help us to love one another in Christ. 
Lord, as an overflow of knowing that we have first been loved by you. And so as we drink in your love, as we swim in your love, as we breathe and live in the love of God through Jesus Christ, Lord, help us to walk in it wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.